Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome Patrice Kirion, Portfolio Manager of the Fidelity Global Concentrated Equity Fund. He opens up about where he's finding global investing opportunities so far in the new year. Patrice explains how this year's market expectations are considerably higher than last year's, with the risk perception dropping due to the greater certainty of upcoming interest rates. Many opportunities lie within undervalued areas. Some dispersion within the market is observed once again, and while there may be a clearer direction forming for it, the journey to that point may not be entirely smooth. Rate cuts are also currently expected by year-end, although their full extent and timing are still uncertain and expectations should remain reasonable. Patrice discusses how numerous Asian markets, particularly China, are showing signs of eventual improvements in corporate governance. There are opportunities to search for undervalued assets, and the market's disappointment with the lack of aggressive stimulus measures is factored into valuations. There are challenges surrounding the real estate sector and weak consumer confidence in the Chinese economy, but market stabilization and increased confidence and spending capacity create potential for a rebound. So kick us off a little bit. We, are, we do seem to be looking internationally for a lot of sort of headline reasons, but for the investment story internationally, how different is the beginning of this year to say the beginning of last year? I think the setup that we are dealt at the beginning of the year is very different uh, than last year. If we rewind the clock to a year ago, there was a great deal of uncertainty around just how high our interest rates going to go, what is the impact going to be on the consumer. In a way, there were concerns of an unknown impact to the economy that was yet to come. So expectations were relatively muted. Uh, the market was on a fairly risk-off mood, very defensive in its positioning. And expensive we, because it was defensive. I mean, the defensive stocks were... It got more expensive through the year, but the year, yeah. yes. But overall, expectations were muted. So there were opportunities if you were willing to look past uh, a lot of uh, that potential risk. Uh, the market tends to overreact. When there is abundant risk perception uh, in the market, it usually leads to pockets that get mispriced and creates opportunities for for portfolio managers like myself looking to, to invest in a contrarian fashion. We look at where we're entering 2024, I would say a fairly different setup where now expectations are actually quite high. Uh, the valuation, if we take on the S&P 500, for instance, we were at 16 times a year ago, we're now 20 times forward earnings. To put that in the broader context, like the long-term historical average is more around 16. And even when rates were at zero, we peaked at 22. So, so we're definitely closer to a peak than a bottom. Um, the market is taking some comfort that I think the, the very bad uh, worst case scenario that we were fearing about the global economy last year is, is probably off the table. Like Because of the rate story. I think we've seen that the consumer has been in general more resilient than what was feared. Inflation came out probably a little bit faster than people feared. And it puts us in a situation where we're probably at peak rates right now. We more or less see what the impact on the economy is, and that should reverse as the year progresses. So yeah, the risk perception has dropped meaningfully. What I would caution, however, is one, some of that is in the price. And second, I don't think we are entirely clear yet. There's still some geopolitical tension, thinks of what's happening 
in the Middle East, in, in China. And I think we are still at a stage where, yes, we've seen some good progress on the inflation data points, but I'm not sure every single month for the next like six or nine or 12 months from here will show that continuing sort of better and expected dynamic. And I think we're in, in for a more volatile, maybe the direction is becoming a little bit more clear, but given that we've priced a lot of that in and it could be choppy along the way, uh, I think an environment where uh, at least I think it's likely that we don't have a year like last year in terms of, of returns from low expectations to high expectations, not with starting a high. I'm not saying we end on low, but I don't think there's that much room for materially positive surprises to, to come out. Well, so that I wonder if just going back to what you said about interest rates and sort of the slightly cloudier picture at the beginning of last year. It's sort of a, a known unknown on, mm -hmm. on some level. So I don't know, do you put that to the side and then sort of make decisions? Does it allow types of styles, for instance, to come back? Do we talk with more confidence about leaning into different types of styles now that most of the interest rates, we think, are, are finished on the rising front? Yeah, I think so. And the market does that very quickly. That's why we've seen um, more speculative or growthy parts of the market right. coming back like pretty quickly Very if you quickly. look at the at the swings in some of these uh, of these stocks over the past four months or so it's been pretty dramatic on the view that we're now approaching rate cuts um, but I would take a little bit of caution around that because yes we are most likely going to end the year with some rate cuts but is it going to be sooner or later than expected? Is there going to be as many cuts as expected? I think those are still like open questions. And the market has priced a lot of that optimism very quickly, right. especially in some parts of the market more than others. Does that leave pockets then that are quite interesting? I think so. We're at a stage where I think there is a lot of dispersion within the market once again. Maybe a little bit less than if we rewind the clock to November, where I think it was more extreme then. But in the grand scheme of things, there's still some very loved parts of the market and some very disliked right. parts of the market. We're talking about narrow breath, like that's for been sure. a team for really the past, since COVID really, where yeah. it's been a fairly narrow market. And as of now, that's still largely what we have. But I suspect that as the environment becomes a little bit more predictable, as rates start to come off, but aren't going back to zero. As the risk on sentiment comes back to the market, probably progressively over the course of the next year, as, as we go through the tougher part of the economic cycle, right. the market's gonna look ahead of that. And I think the market will start to be forced to pay attention to those, yeah, really out of favor parts of the market, which okay, is well, what I'm looking for as a yeah, team. And you, and you have you have a contrarian way of, of style of investing as well. So let's let's go there. Let's take a look at what what are the super underloved parts of the market that at the moment are catching your eye, or maybe they caught your eye months ago. I don't know. But take us there. Yeah. So I think it's across many different aspects. First, if we think of market cap. Yeah. We've been into ah. a mega cap led cycle. It's interesting cycle. you started with the cap size. Okay. Very interesting. And yes. on the flip side, there is a fair number of smaller cap companies that in a lot of cases are more economically sensitive or their valuations are a little bit more dependent on more of a risk on 
uh, attitude in the market, but where the valuations are still really interesting here. And, so, and we're looking globally here. And, I mean, this yeah. is the global story. When we're talking to you, we're talking about the global story. And, and this it, is cap size. Okay. Yeah, and it is globally, but it is true in almost every single region. Like you can look at Japan and I think there's more opportunities, more interesting mispriced, like seen dislocated stock in small caps than mega caps. Mm -hmm. It's definitely true in the US. I think it's true in Europe. So every parts of the world we've seen, um, yeah, small cap, stocks being uh, more punished than the rest of the markets in general. So I think that's one element where uh, we could see a reversion of that uh, as, as the year progress. Uh, if we talk about geographies, um, it's been a little bit more broad in terms of US versus Europe. Um, but Asia is still really out of favor. Uh, Japan out of is catching up a little bit right now. There's some interesting dynamics taking place especially around corporate governance, which is improving. Um, but in general, given the universally negative perception of China and a very slow recovery uh, over there. And, just, and a lack of stimulus, it seems, at every announcement. It it's just sort of confirms that there isn't some onslaught of stimulus being released into the market. Just It's not happening it, so far. There, there is very measured, precise like stimulus right. approaches, but there's not the the large program, like the bazooka approach, like in 2009, that the market would like to see, which I don't think is likely to happen, um, but it leaves China in a very negative sentiment in the mind of investors at the moment. So is that interesting to you? I think that's the kind of opportunities that, that, that arise when sentiment uh, turns too negative, uh, where things are weak or not accelerating as hoped, but it is known and it's really factored into valuations, uh, this is where I tend to be uh, more excited. And it's definitely the case in China right now, but it's broader than that across Asia because China is really important to tourism in Southeast Asia. It's important to export for some Japanese or Korean companies. So it leaves to me as Asia being maybe the most uh, unloved, mispriced part of the world That's at the moment. I haven't heard anyone else say that in the last in the last little while. So, so take us a little bit then from there to the story of sectors and, mm -hmm. and if it applies to China as much as it does to a lot of other economies. What what's of interest there? Yeah. So I like to break sectors or companies in three buckets: cyclicals, growth, and defensives. Uh, if we go, we'll start with growth. I think that's a little bit easier there. Um, I think expectations have ramped up meaningfully again. A lot of that is driven by tech. A lot of that is now driven by AI and the impact it has on semiconductors and all the supply chains on that front. Um, look, the, the change is real, but is it to the magnitude of what's priced into those stocks? Um, debatable uh, and not in my style to go chase that. So I think this is one group of sectors, like especially tech, like the growthier parts of the market, where expectations have ramped back up quite significantly. It makes it less interesting to put new capital. Um, if we go to defensives, uh, this is one area of the market where I've been yeah, unexcited about for a very long time. Well, it was expensive. It was very expensive yeah, last they're year. They're relatively slow growth companies that had really high valuations when rates were, were elevated, uh, and when, when rates were really low. Yep. Now that rates are elevated, valuations have come off. Uh, we've seen on top of just like macro valuation pressures, we've seen a lot of 
earnings pressure on a lot of consumer staples, for instance, where they've had to absorb a lot of inflation hit into their margins, and that's reverting as inflation reverts. Uh, so we will see, in a fair number of cases, margin improvement stories coming back. And if we go into a choppier year where we can't expect 25% like aggregate returns, um, maybe to have a bit of defensiveness into the portfolio starts to make more sense from those lower uh, valuation entry points. So this is one part of the market that I've been adding. It's still not a big part of portfolio, but the margin more interesting to me than, than it was certainly at the beginning of last year. So there's more to say on all of the fronts that you've, you've just said. Let's just remind everyone joining you here today that the opportunity that your funds offer to Canadian dollars, making uh, Canadian investors making Canadian dollars versus taking a look at com companies around the world. So just sort of remind us of the two funds. Yes, yeah, so I manage two portfolios which are managed with the same investment philosophy. One is global, which means I can go truly anywhere across the globe. Uh, and I have an international mandate for investors who want to further diversify outside of North America, my international mandate is essentially investing in Europe, emerging markets, uh, Asia. Uh, so strips out North America from the mix. And if you look at global indices, uh, and probably if you look at most of your clients' portfolios, North America is now around 70% of the total. Uh, so if we are, as I suspect, potentially going into the next three, five years, where we are sort of going into an environment of global reacceleration of the economy, um, I think with a backdrop of interest rates that yes might come down, but remain more elevated than what we've seen over the past ten years, uh, I, I think that may bring a little bit more shine uh, on the more cyclically driven nature of economies in Europe and in Asia versus what we've seen over the past number of years. Fascinating. So an interesting opportunity. If we go to Europe, Davos is on right now. So there's lots of discussion of, of Europe and, and where it fits. There's also discussions of everything and where it all fits. But I was sort of taken by a couple of conversations about European banks. They're having the discussions about, you know, the Eurozone itself and where capital markets fits and all of those conversations that happen. European banks, it's sort of an interesting place that then falls out of favor. Where, where are banks in sort of the cyclical bank story? Banks, to, to put a little bit of perspective on that, I was very optimistic on European banks as of a year ago from the view that as interest rates move higher in Europe, uh, it will bring a, a very material earnings tailwind to uh, a lot of these uh, companies, which had been under earning for, for years yeah. in the context of negative interest rates. So that sector has performed actually extremely well over the course of the last 12 to 18 months or so. Usually when that happens, I tend to be much less optimistic about the opportunity. I'm, I'm contrarian by nature. I tend to go where performance has been weaker, not where it's yeah. been strong. That said, in, in Europe, I still feel fairly positive about, about banks there. What I am changing at the margin is there are two, if we generalize a little bit. There are yeah. two groups of banks, not only in Europe, but in general. Mm -hmm. Some banks have assets that reprice very quickly. So when interest rates go up, their lending book tends to be more variable in nature. So the benefit from being able to generate more earnings from higher interest rates right. almost immediately. If we go back in the context of Europe, this is countries like Spain, Italy, Germany, Ireland. And this is where I had a fair bit of exposure as we entered last year. 
Uh, we've seen dramatic earnings revision. I think this opportunity is closing to some extent. The valuations are still cheap, but the earnings revisions is probably largely done by now. Yeah. On the flip side, you have banks that have longer term loans that are made, usually on the mortgage side. And it means that for them to capture the benefit of higher interest rates, it takes many years. Right. It will take like in some cases, five to seven, eight years to fully capture the benefit of higher interest rates uh, because they need the entire book uh, of loans to renew. And I think this is where there's starting to be opportunities that are more interesting uh, in Europe. And that would be in countries like France, like the UK, uh, which tend to have sort of longer term rate sensitivity on the financial institutions uh, earnings. And that's where I'm shifting a little bit from early cycle banks on interest rates right. to longer cycle. And I'm doing the same sort of subtle changes in a lot of parts of the portfolios. If we think of industrials, the story of the past couple of years have been really strong performance from capital goods. So right. companies that have long duration projects, long backlogs. And on the flip side, we've seen a bit of weakness on the shorter cycles. So businesses that react like right away, think of transports, for instance, or factory automation. And I think the opportunity is starting to shift. Like, Although the economy is not pivoting like as we speak, I think it probably will over the next year or so, and the market will potentially be more interesting into those companies that will benefit from a, an inflection point to a better backdrop within industrials. Same thing within consumer. Like in general, even in within a sector basis, there tends to be parts of the sector that are really well liked and fairly expensive and fairly high expectations. And, and other parts that are still quite depressed and interesting on a normalized basis. And that's what I think is, is interesting. And that's what I'm trying to take advantage of. So would you say sort of on, on the broad statement that markets are expecting what? I mean, what, what are you sort of navigating through in terms of market expectations and therefore either allocating around or into? What, give yeah. us sort of that message. I think the view of the market at this point is inflation is under control. We will get rate cuts. We will get a soft landing. The consumer is going to be fine through that. Mm. Uh, In what parts of the world? I think especially driven start. by the US. Okay. Um, but the general perception is along those lines. But yes, it's, it's more of a North America comment. But even Europe has some flavor of that yeah. as well. Like LATAM has some flavor of that. Yeah. Asia is the exception, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but Asia is not very big of the global market cap. So if you think of the, the global market, the view is we are getting this soft landing that nobody believed a right. year ago. And in a way, it makes me a little bit nervous because, yes, I understand that the probability of a soft landing has improved. Uh, but I also suspect it's not a done deal. And as I mentioned earlier on, there, there are some, some potential risks out there that could at least temporarily change the market views of what's the likelihood of that For taking sure. place. And that's why I think this is not a year where you want to chase too much. Uh, I think when things go well, like take a little bit of um, of profit and, and look for the opportunities when sentiment turns more negative. Let's let's go back a couple of your comments earlier on. This is this is talking about the Chinese economy. So will the reopening of the Chinese economy give a positive boost to international equities in general? You say it's out of favor. Do you see it coming back into favor and giving a boost? I think it is one of the important contributors to a broader 
uh, strength ex-US, uh, yeah. because China has a big impact on emerging markets, on uh, commodities demand. It has a big impact on a lot of large European exporters. Uh, so yes, China getting better. And it's not so much the reopening, because China is reopened now. It's about finding some comfort in the consumer, uh, mostly around real estate. Like the consumer has money in China. They are able to spend. They are not spending as much right now because confidence is really weak because real estate is still under right. pressure. Uh, it's been under pressure for a while. I think, I think the dramatic like meltdown scenario that we were fearing when developers were going out of business, I think this is largely off the table. Now it's more a question of real estate prices. Um, and we are seeing like progressive, not big, but progressive actions being made trying to stabilize the real estate market. I cannot tell you if it's likely to happen next month or a year from now. But I think we're likely to find that bottom over the next, call it like, over the next year. Yeah. And as that happens, it should improve sentiment of the consumer. And if consumer confidence improve and they have the money to spend, uh, I think it can change the China story, can change sentiment from investors around it. Um, and yeah, that would have a big impact on the performance of international market versus the US market. Are companies, do you think, more concerned about supply chain issues after the pandemic? Also, the Red Sea is obviously front and center in that. Do you see this sort of onshoring trend impacting other either EM markets, but you know, sort of the global economy, bring in the supply chain issue. Yeah, so supply chains are largely fixed right now. Yeah, uh, we need to be careful because yes, like maritime shipping yeah. through, uh, through the Red Sea is a big question mark right now. Um, it could bring back inflation on freight. It could bring back, who knows, inflation on oil prices, on energy. Um, so this, those are some of the risks I was alluding to earlier, that uh, I'm not sure everything is necessarily clear, uh, or at least like on a straight line progression from an inflation like recovery perspective. In terms of supply chain and the impact to different countries, uh, I think the biggest impact from all that is supply chains went from being very stretched to being very loose from the low demand because we had overbuilt inventories right. pretty much everywhere in pretty much every sector. Now that inventory has been in destocking mode, that's been the case for more or less the past six months, we are coming to the end uh, and different subgroups of products will, will have different timing. But in general, we are very near the end of that destocking. So that means that even with just a constant end demand, we will see exports picking back up for a lot of economies. And I think that will be much more powerful than at the margin moving a little bit of a supply chain of X from right. China to Vietnam or from Thailand to Bangladesh or to Mexico or whatever it might be. I don't think that will have dramatic impact uh, overall. There are some sectors where it will have broader impacts. Uh, where it is literally like mega project. Think of batteries for electric vehicles. Right. Think of semiconductor fabs. That's going to uh, be a problem. Where yeah. a lot of basically stimulus or, or government programs are in place to, to bring these projects onshore in the U.S. or onshore in Europe. Uh, but I think this is not representative of the broader uh, sort of supply chain imports of so many different products 
where the changes are just don't happen that quickly. So right. Okay. At the margin, it helps a little bit Mexico. It helps a little bit Eastern Europe, right. North Africa. Uh, it helps maybe a little bit Southeast Asia at the cost of China, but those are not dramatic impacts. So let's talk a little bit about AI influence. You mentioned this earlier that you felt, you know, very interesting. Maybe some valuations getting ahead of themselves. I think is you'll you'll. Yeah. You'll take us back there, but the influence on, on international markets of AI is the question. I think the story is fairly similar across yeah. no matter where we are. Those right. technologies travel pretty quickly. Yes, they are yeah. more owned by U.S. companies, uh, but they'll be available to to most. I think where I think what's going to be interesting to watch from here is how do those really get applied? Like right now, we yeah, know we what know they yet. can do. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of hype around like building those learning models, and obviously this is super semiconductor like intensive of, of a phase that we're in right now. But what can those AI languages really do to help to help the world, to help the efficiency of companies, to help better understand the consumer and what they want? And the and all valuation that. of companies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, this is not an area where I spend a lot of my time uh, being contrarian. Um, but I think this is more the next wave as opposed to the wave we're in right now, which is who has the model and who supplies the hardware to run those. Um, I think that's been, and look, who knows where that goes, but a lot of that at the minimum has been talked about, reflected into stocks valuation, right. probably getting a little bit harder to massively surprise higher from here. Uh, but if you find some companies that can apply it in a really neat way that gives them a competitive advantage in their sector and can generate better profits or gain market share as a result, uh, I think this is where opportunities might lie going forward. Okay, so you'll be looking for those, but maybe yeah. a little bit further down the line. So here's a great question. It's going back to Asia, some of your comments there. Do you think that governments in Asia will be open to corporations doing large buybacks? This is looking at the financial regulation story, really. I think in general, governments don't have issues uh, right. with that. I, I think even in the even in the Western world being in- Europe in, sometimes doesn't love that. But yeah, but usually it's not governments. It's more yeah. okay. corporate culture uh, okay. where it is definitely much less of a factor. Um, I would say Japan and Korea are two countries where historically there's been very little buybacks uh, being done, like a huge, not government, but corporate culture right. against buybacks. Um, at the margin, it's starting to change a little bit in Japan. Uh, I mentioned a few words earlier that corporate governance uh, is improving into a greater number of companies uh, in Japan. Uh, so there is increased hopes. But where I would stress that where there is some willingness to buy back and some extremely val like interesting valuations to buy back is, I'll go back to China. Yeah. Um, hmm. There are some big companies that are now trading at, call it six to 10 times earnings, uh, where the growth is not where it used to be, but the business is not shrinking, and where they have great balance sheets to start with. In a lot of cases, you have some um, founders that still own a lot of the business that have a vested interest in, in seeing the share price reverse, like a pretty, pretty meaningful slump here. Yeah. And where we're seeing like meaningful buybacks taking place at very, very cheap valuations. And this is the type of opportunities I'm trying to look for. Right now. Okay, I'm so glad whoever asked that asked that because that, that was a great, great insight. So just a couple of minutes, 
Tell us 2024 from your perspective. You could have mentioned at the beginning the differences. Where do we go from here? Yeah, I think, I think we're starting from high expectations, but the outlook is also improving. Okay. Like we will most likely get rate cuts as opposed to just hopes of that. So I think the economy is finding its bottom, essentially. The bottom is at a better level than what we would have feared 12 or 18 or 24 months ago. But valuations are not cheap. And as I said, things probably won't progress on a straight line. So I think it will be a volatile year. And I think it's likely to be a year where we start to see this breath like taking place again as macro fears abate to some extent as we start thinking about 2025. I know we're just turning into 2024, but as the year progresses, that's what the market will do, start thinking about 2025. And if 2025 becomes more a story of global reacceleration, that I think will have meaningful impacts on which parts of the market in terms of market caps, sectors, geographies, as we talked about, will attract new capital. And in general, those will be the parts of the market that have been out of favor to a large extent over the past five, seven years. And you look at some inflection points like we got in October and November when we started to sense that the economy was holding up okay and that interest rates would start being cut through the course of 2024. And you get some very sharp market reactions. And those are really hard to forecast on a short-term basis. Okay. But I feel that's going to be the story of 2024. So we, we may have continued at the end of last year, but this might be the story for this year. Yeah. Patrice Corion, we will take your insight, watch the global markets, and thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing.